Open your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page number 246. Uh, Today we're jumping back into our series called Kings. And if you haven't been uh, with us or if you need to play some catch-up, I just want to encourage you, go onto our website, listen to some of the uh, sermons to catch up. If you're like me, you know, when I'm working out or if I'm doing some stuff around the house, if I'm mowing the yard or something like that, I like to have headphones in, I like to listen. I listen to several sermons and podcasts and things every week. Uh, Take some time and really focus on keeping the Word of God in front of your mind. Our sermons that we post on our website shouldn't be all that you ever hear of God's Word. So if you want some resources, see myself, see Jordan. We have plenty we could share with you. And I just want to try to encourage us to continue to develop our minds and our uh, hunger for God's Word. That commercial's over. Okay. Uh, in our story, if, to catch us up here, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we have David who is on the run. He is... He just he and his men had just saved the city of Kela, and in his only repayment for them from them is betrayal because Saul gets word that David is in the city of Kela, and in order to save themselves, the people of Kela are going to give David over to Saul. David gets wise to this, and he prays to God, saying, "Are they really going to do this, God? Yeah, they will, David. Okay, so David." takes off, and he flees from Saul. And that's our setup. So we have in chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. This was a spot in Judea that was fairly remote. Uh, there was plenty of clefts in the rocks and the mountains to hide. So Saul was just following a logical conclusion. When he's uh, pursuing David, he's thinking, this would be a great place to hide. This is probably where they are. And inst- but actually, David, instead of running away in this, uh, the way that this is set up, if you know the geography, he's not running away from Saul. He's actually heading straight towards him. And so the paths of these two men cross uh, in this place where there's a sheep pen and there's also a cave, all right? And we read here, literally, Saul goes into this cave to relieve himself, all right? And, I mean, this is a scene straight out of, like, the Goonies or something, all right? So imagine you're one of David's men. You are hiding in a cave, because you see Saul and all his uh, battalion out there. Saul walks up. He's surveying the land. He sets his sights right on the cave that you are in. And he walks into the cave. You're like, all right, here, here it comes, all right. And you're like kind of strapping on your, uh, your swords, getting everything ready for battle. And instead, Saul stops, squats, and you can insert your own sound effects here, okay? <laughs> so I was originally supposed to preach this sermon last week. Thank God I didn't have to do that on Mother's Day, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so David's men relax, and they're probably laughing, and they're saying, all right, let's go tell David. Uh, in verse 4, they tell David, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And so hearing this, David goes up, and he sneaks up towards where Saul is you know, doing his business. I'm going to run out of euphemisms really quick. But anyway, Saul's doing his business, and he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. And now, I don't think that Saul was still wearing the robe. Okay, He probably took the robe off and laid it aside uh, before he... you know answer the call of nature. And uh, here's the whole thing. I only point this out. The, the Bible is delightfully weird and funny, all right? Because Saul enters the cave. He, he starts doing this, and then 
David's men said, all right, they sneak away, they go tell David. David sneaks back in, cuts off piece of the robe, gets convicted about it. He walks back, he, he sneaks back to his men, and he tells them, no, we're not going to kill Saul. And then Saul gets up and leaves the cave. How much time had to have elapsed there, all right? Saul had to have had a really good book, or he had some Facebooking to catch up on or something. But he's oblivious to all of this. After doing this, David's heart becomes troubled. In verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Why was David upset? I mean, in modern terms, the equivalent of what I would think David just did to Saul would be like he keyed his car, all right? Yes, it's vandalism, but in the end, really, no harm, no foul. But David is really troubled by this. But if you read David's concern, he didn't care about destroying his clothing. He cared rather who he was acting against. God forbid that I should do this to the Lord's anointed. What I appreciate so much about David here is that he understands before anyone else does, if you raise your hand against God's people, you are raising your hand against God. This is the same David who killed Goliath. He knew that he wasn't going to be able to do that without the power of the strength of the God of the heavenly armies. And so David knew firsthand what it was like to be on the right side of that exchange. He wasn't going to mess for a second with being on the wrong side. And so, and we read this again later in 1 Samuel 26, verse 10, with a similar opportunity to kill Saul right in front of him. David says, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or, this day will come, or, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put, my, put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David had already been anointed as Israel's next king. And he's saying that if and when Saul is removed, it's God's part to remove him. It's not mine. Until God removes Saul as king... It is my duty to faithfully serve him. And me sneaking up behind him to cut off a portion of his robe while this bathroom scene is going on, that is not the kind of thing that I want to be known for doing. And so in verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And I want to point out something where the translation kind of gets weak here, because that word persuaded is a very bland American uh, translation of that. The literal words here mean he tore apart with these words. So at the mention of killing the king, David tears into his men. He is fiercely defending the life of his king, and he is demanding that if I'm not going to lift my hand against the king, none of my men are going to either. I want to take a moment. I want to share an illustration here that I heard years ago that I think will apply here. Uh, There there was a, a youth pastor in Tennessee. He and he wasn't married, he didn't have kids, but he had a dog. And he loved this dog. It was said of this youth pastor, one of the times when his dog got sick and he needed to stay at the vets overnight to, for some surgery, he was so worried about his dog, he actually brought his blanket and a pillow and slept outside the dog's cage on the floor of a veterinarian's office, okay? That's gross, all right? And so to say that he loved his dog was a bit of an understatement. So the preacher wanted to use this relationship to, uh, as an illustration one Sunday. So he had the pastor and his dog come up on stage, and he took a tennis ball, and he threw it down the aisle and looked at the dog and said, fetch, and the dog didn't move. Clearly, this dog has no regard for church authority, all right? So then, so he got the ball back, and he wrapped it in a $20 bill, and he pinned it to the ball, and he looked at the dog, he threw it down the aisle and said, fetch, dog didn't move. 
All right, well, clearly this dog doesn't care about financial gain then. And so he said, all right, let's try peer pressure. I'm going to count to three, and we're all going to yell fetch, and we're going to see if the dog will move. So he threw the ball, one, two, three, fetch. Dog wouldn't flinch. All right, so this dog will not succumb to peer pressure. And then, so he had another idea. So he had, you know, one of the, this, uh, an 18-year-old girl from the church, you know, just very pretty girl. Uh, she comes up, and she's, she's petting the dog and, you know, rubbing behind his ears. Guys are with me. That's just not fair, all right? She's playing dirty pool here. And so she gets, she's loving on the dog, and she throws it down the aisle, goes, fetch. Now, I'm told that the dog flinched, but he still didn't move. He just still didn't leave the stage. And so then the preacher, okay, this dog doesn't care about physical beauty. So then the preacher handed the ball to the dog's master. He threw the ball down the aisle, just had a very plain fetch. And immediately the dog bounded off the stage, snatched the ball out of the air before it could bounce a second time. And the preacher looked right at his congregation and said, who do you fetch for? I thought of this story because when I see David passing up this great opportunity to rid himself of the mad king, I just keep asking myself, do I have the same conviction? When every other voice is telling me to go one way, would I stand firm to only listen to the voice of God? It's a problem that has plagued us as a species all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent convinced Eve that you can somehow shortcut God's will and still find true fulfillment in this life. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John gives us a taxonomy of sin. We read, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. And I want to walk through this text and explore how David resisted the world so that he could fetch for his true master. So this first uh, category we get is the lust of the flesh. It would make me feel good. All right, I'd feel better. I want this. I desire this. It would give me pleasure. It would give me satisfaction. It would take away my pain. In the garden, the serpent was trying to convince Eve, God's holding out on you. The enemy wants us to start questioning God. The temptation here for David was to act independently of God. Think about it, David. If you're supposed to be Israel's next king, then why are you hiding? If you really are supposed to be the next anointed king of Israel, then why are you always on the run? Let's forget about David for a minute. Let's talk about us, all right? If God really loves me, if God truly wants me to think, wants me to think of myself as his child, then why don't I have any money? If God really loves me, why didn't I get a promotion? If God really loves me, how can I have cancer? If God loves me, why is my marriage all jacked up? Or why are my kids a mess? So we begin to question the goodness of God because we don't feel good right now. We question God because we don't feel like we think we should be feeling. So in this moment, David could have killed Saul, but David makes a choice here not to fulfill himself, but rather to fulfill the kingdom of God. We live in a world and a culture that is trying to tell you that you should be fulfilling every desire that you have before you think about anything else. Who are you to tell me that I shouldn't be happy? And we try everything that's out there. We pursue money, we pursue entertainment, we idolize our children, and when that isn't enough, because that will not fill this void, then we can drown our sorrows with any sort of chemical, alcohol, drugs, whatever you have, anything to alter our state of consciousness, anything so that we don't have to deal with the underlying sin problem that we all have. It's been said from the stage before, I'm going to say it again. God does not care about your happiness. 
The creator God knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows that this pursuit of happiness will never lead to more than a moment's satisfaction. So he tells us not to seek our fulfillment in happiness, but rather to pursue holiness. And when we pursue holiness, we don't find happiness. Instead, he gives us joy. And you know the difference between happiness and joy, right? Happiness is circumstantial. It changes as often as the wind does. But if we have joy, joy is what gives us the ability to find contentment, no matter what's happening around us. When we sing this song, it is well. You cannot sing that song unless you have the joy that only comes from the Lord. The second category of sin. Not only will this make me feel good, this will make me look good. The lust of the eyes. This will be impressive. People will think something of me. It would bring attention to me. David has been anointed as Israel's next king in secret. He killed a giant in front of the entire Israelite army. He gains fame from this, being a great military leader. They write about this song. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. I hope the song had a good beat because those lyrics are pretty weak. But anyways, you get the point. David had plenty of reason to think that he should be seen in a certain light. Not someone who is sneaking around the floor of a cave, cutting off a piece of his king's robe while he's doing his business, all right? David's men keyed in on this. They saw what what Saul was doing, and they run to David and said, here it is. The Lord promised you that he would deliver Saul into your hands. Today is the day that you can kill this guy, and you can claim the throne for yourself. And if you bear with me for a moment, I don't like ending up on a soapbox and being a social critic, but I think it's important for us to see this world as it is. It's driving me crazy because we have churches and we have ministries in this world that are, say things like, go out and claim a promise. Barf. All right? In other words, pull out a verse from the Bible, hold it up in God's face and say, you better do this. Be very, very careful about getting in God's face and asking him to prove to you who he is. I think we have enough evidence. I think the crucifixion and the resurrection are all the evidence we need to realize that God's words are true. And I don't care. You can claim all the promises you want, but if God's timing says it's not right, then who are we to ask God to document for us that he's still at work? I think the resurrection is all that we'll ever need. We are so blessed to live on this side of it. How much more faithful were those people who lived in the days of Jesus and even before that when they couldn't see the whole picture, but yet they still trusted God? How much more faith did that take? So it sure would make me look good. It sure would make me uh, feel good. And the last one is, I deserve this, the pride of life. David had the opportunity to take it upon himself and to seize right now what God promised that he could have later. And most of us would think, I deserve that. I've prayed about this. I've waited on the Lord. I go to church. I give my money to help good causes. I love my family. I put in all this time to help, and everyone else is catching breaks. I'm not catching a single break. So I'm going to take for myself right now what God has not yet decided to give me. Who do you fetch for? Whose command are you waiting for before you respond? So why wait? You deserve it right now. And you know what? That might be true, as much as any of us deserve anything. It may be true that we deserve it right now, at least in the eyes of the world. But what I know for sure is that we want it right now. But waiting on the Lord is crucial. In the book of James, he writes, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice the progression. Submit to God first. 
So did David desire to be king? Yes. Did David want to stop running and fearing for his life? Yes. Would David have been a better king in that moment than Saul was? Yes. So why did he submit to Saul's authority? Because he was waiting on God's perfect timing, even when God delayed. In his book, Spiritual Leadership, uh, J. Oswald Sanders is the author. He identifies three principles that are crucial to spiritual leadership. And I see these clearly identified by David's actions here. And so the first one, I want to explore these briefly. The first one is the sovereignty of God. Who raised up Saul to be Israel's king? God did. And yes, Samuel had anointed David as Israel's next king, but David believed it can only be God who removes Saul. So when it is said that David is a man after God's own heart, my belief is that the fundamental principle beneath all of that is that David submits to God's rule before his own. During this time of testing when, before he is king, David is acknowledging over and over again that any power that I have is only on loan from God himself. So as long as that God chooses to keep Saul in power, who am I to lift my hand against Saul? Because I don't want to lift my hand against God. And now this very well might have been the ideal time for him to kill Saul and to start his own reign, but David's fundamental belief in the sovereignty of God keeps him from doing anything about that. Now, I don't want us to confuse David's refusal to strike Saul down as either hesitancy or weakness in any form, because far from it. In verse 12, David says to Saul, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. David's confidence is not only in the sovereignty of God, but in God's sense of justice as well. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul writes about this as well. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In his commentary on this verse, John Murray, he writes, Here we have what belongs to the essence of piety. The essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God, to take everything into our own hands. It is faith to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our care to him, and to vest all of our interests in him. In reference to this matter at hand, the wrongdoing that we are the victim of, the way of faith is to recognize that God is judge, to lead the execution of vengeance and retribution to him. Is God still on his throne? when our lives aren't going the way that we think they should. We need to live like it. In Revelation, we read about the martyrs, the martyrs who have died for their faith in Christ, who are crying out to God, saying, God, how long will you wait to avenge our blood? And God tells them, be patient. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And it's haunting to think, if God is delaying, to avenge the people who have died for him. How much longer might we have to wait? And that takes faith. The second principle is suffering. Uh, Sanders, who, who wrote these, he led a missionary organization. He was, he was a preacher for decades, and he recalls very clearly uh, a critique when he was still early in his uh, ministry. Uh, he was uh, walking out behind and two Two church ladies were talking and making their commentary on the sermon, and they were very nice, but uh, one of them said to the other, so what did you think? What do you think of the sermon? And the other, uh, the other lady responded, said, you know, not bad, but he's going to be much better after he suffered. I don't know if she was planning on making him suffer. I don't know. But anyways, 
Earlier this week, uh, I, was, I was talking with Jessie. Jessie's our church secretary. She doubles as the in-office therapist sometimes. You have to be to work with guys like me and Jordan. But anyways, uh, but I was talking to her. I said, you know, I was just being driven crazy. What I hate about modern music, specifically modern romantic music, uh, is that all the lyrics are like, I'm going to give you all of me. I'm going to give you everything, all my passion, everything. You're perfect, babe, all this stuff, blah, blah. just uh, drives me crazy. And I just have to think, you know, that's all great when you're trying to win the heart of a lady. But then what about three weeks into your relationship when you have to watch this person flossing? All right. What happens when this person puts the toilet paper on the roll the wrong way? Okay, anyone else? All right, thank you. Okay, yes, a testimony, all right. I don't call those violin strings type moments, all right? Now, thing is, there's a pretty brown, brown-haired girl in this room that uh, I am bonded to for life, and I can tell you right now, it is not based on the depth of our passion for each other. All right, she would testify that would have burned out a long time ago. And, but the thing is, we are bonded because we have gone through some stuff together. We have suffered through some very tough times. And making it through those lean years, it, it bonds you in a way that is tough to put into words. Now, and it's gotten to this point where the idea of leaving her is just foreign to me. Makes no sense. Not a part of my not a part of my thought process at all. It's like trying to breathe underwater. It doesn't make any sense because of what we have endured together. And there's plenty of couples that have had it much worse than us. Don't get me wrong. But that was the fire through which our marriage was refined. And this period that we're exploring, when David is anointed, from the time that David is anointed to be the next king to when he starts sitting on the throne, this time David endures a great deal of suffering. And most of his suffering comes from the hand of Saul. David isn't marching to the throne in spite of all the suffering he is going through. No, David's suffering is his journey to the throne. Suffering is the means by which God prepares David for leadership. And this is not unique to David at all. We have Joseph. He suffers at the hand of his brothers. He's unjustly imprisoned in Egypt. And uh, God uses this time to prepare Joseph to put him in the perfect place so that when uh, a time of famine comes, he's able to deliver his family and ultimately the entire people of Israel uh, so that they survive. For 400 years, the, the entire nation of Israel is held in slavery in Egypt. God uses this time to prepare them to live as free men and women after the Exodus. Jesus, before he begins his earthly ministry, for 40 days he fasts and he is seeking after God's will. And then the, the devil comes in and tempts him. And this... This is what Jesus goes through before he begins his earthly ministry that changes the world forever. God uses the suffering we have, we, that we face to achieve for us a crown of glory. And David's men are tempting him with this opportunity to shortcut his sufferings and so that he could speed up his rule by killing Saul. Their temptation for David is really no different than the temptation that Jesus faced right before he began his public ministry. What was the last temptation? Satan tells Jesus shows him the entire world. All of this I will give to you if you would but bow down and worship me. Jesus, I'll give you the world now without the cross. And Jesus submits to God's will, which included the cross, so that he could fulfill the will of God and not himself. The third principle we have through this is uh, servanthood or submission. This is the principle that ties all three of them together. 
For David, this was a simple progression. God raises Saul to be Israel's king. David is God's servant, therefore he is Saul's servant. He connects the dots very plainly. This is even true for David when Saul is chucking spears at him, okay? He is still Saul's servant. His spirit is troubled after he cuts off a portion of Saul's robe. David realizes that he is a servant of the king. He just snuck up on his king while he was laying down some... Okay, uh, but he cut off a piece of his clothes during this time, and he gets so upset at what he just did, he refuses to even consider killing Saul or to let his men do so. And this is displayed further. David could have just stayed behind in the cave, kept that piece of his robe, and just let Saul go on his merry little way. But no, he exits the cave, and he holds up the evidence of his treachery in his hand, and he... uh, he calls out to Saul. In verse 8, he tells Saul, why are you listening to men who say that I want to do you harm? See this piece of your robe. The Lord gave you into my hand. I didn't kill you. Even though you're hunting me down, I did not sin against you. The Lord will judge who's right in this case, but that decision is his and not mine. We have more chapters to review in this book, but this is David's pattern over and over again. As long as Saul is alive, Saul is Israel's king, and David will serve him. Therefore, David never stops serving Saul in complete submission. So who did David fetch for? Some people might say that he fetched for Saul, but no, really, he fetched for God. Many Christians think and they teach that suffering is not part of God's will, that true faith is rewarded by immediate blessings and the absence of pain, and that's just not true. Many try to discern God's will by not looking at Uh, Sorry, they try to discern God's will by looking only at the favorable circumstances rather than living by faith and cementing themselves in God's word, not by sight. And I see Christians getting their guidance from other misguided Christians and rather than standing alone on biblical principle. So when the world strikes and when suffering comes, I have to ask, who will you fetch for? I want to conclude today very quickly with four truths that we can glean from this text and Girl, I'm going to invite you to come on up right now. <laughs> I didn't talk to you about beforehand. All right. So fourth truth today. We see here how David dealt with the temptation to shortcut God. We know that Adam and Eve faced these temptations. We know that Job dealt with these. We know that Abraham went through these. And even Jesus faced these same temptations. And he overcame them. So what do we learn from this as you and I face these temptations every day? First of all, uh, we need to know that we have a real adversary. Thankfully, we don't have a mad king who's hunting us down, chucking spears at us, all right? But we still have a real adversary. It's very popular today to try to say that hell isn't something that actually exists, that Satan was something that the church just made up to try to hold you accountable. But no, I keep this very simply. Jesus preached and proclaimed that Satan was real. Therefore, so do I. And I just need you to know, this is not a game. Christianity is not an ethics discussion. It is a life and death battle in the spiritual realm for the souls of people. Because Satan knows that he's defeated, and he wants to harm God as much as he can before his own day of reckoning. Second, we face the same temptations today as David did back then. And I know I've been redundant with this, so I'm going to be brief. The pursuit of immortality in our culture, that's the lust of the flesh. The materialism that we see in our society, the lust of the eyes. The pride and arrogance we see, it's the pride of life. We face it in everything that we do. Everything that tempts you to take a shortcut from God falls into one of these three categories. Third, we have the ultimate authority to overcome these temptations. 
This is the good news. We have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us. And I'm not just talking about saving you from the penalty of your penalty of your sins so that you could be somehow on the right side of the scales of justice at some apocalyptic ethereal date in the future. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the power that is available inside you to, so that you can live a redeemed life right now. When we look at all that's taking place in this world and we start wringing our hands trying to think about how are we going to live the Christian life in a world that hates us, you need to know that when God looks at us, he's not expecting that we would live a perfect life. He does expect us to live a powerful life. And I'm going to say it again. God's not expecting that you'll be perfect. He is expecting that you'll be powerful. And why is that? Because he left his Holy Spirit and he left his Holy Word to give us the power that we need to overcome. John would write, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. But we don't live like that. We live like the world is gaining power. Instead, we try to live by our own power. We live by our own ability, our own will, our own self-control. And I have to ask, how's that working out? There is a power available to us. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and actions of the heart. There is power in the word of God. And I want you to understand, I don't want you to know what's in the Bible so that you would come across as smarter or you have this greater wealth of information. The power of God's word is found when it is known and experienced. There are incredibly intelligent men and men and women out there. New Testament biblical scholars, they have forgotten more about the Bible than I know. And the thing is, they don't know Jesus. So knowing the word of God without practicing the will of God is a futile effort. But trying to practice the will of God without knowing the word of God, that is a powerless experience. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He does expect us to be powerful. Because his word works. And if we trust it, every temptation we face, every sin, go to the word of God, weigh it, and see if it's the lust of the eyes, if it's the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. See what God's word has to say about that issue, and then see if the power of God in the Holy Spirit doesn't come alive in you. And last, we have God's blessings when we overcome. My mind is thinking right now to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus was at his weakest. He knew that from the moment he started walking this earth that it was going to end in his death. And Satan knew this too. And so that's why his third temptation was the crown without the cross. And Jesus is in the garden and that coward Satan shows up and he offers Jesus a shortcut. And Jesus just submits to his father, God, is there any other way to do this? And God remains silent. So what did Jesus do? He said no to the shortcut so that he could fulfill everything his father ever wanted for him. There is a power and authority available through the Holy Spirit and the word of God to every one of us. He doesn't expect that we'll be perfect. He does desire that we will live powerfully. So this morning, if you have not yet taken a knee before this great king who has offered you this great news of the gospel, not only salvation, but the promise of a life that will build something that can never be destroyed, if you have never submitted to that king, we'd love to have a conversation with you. And if, you, if in the past you have already made that confession, then I pray today, that, pray today that you would start to live by the power and to prepare your heart to know that the opportunities are coming again and again for Satan to offer us a shortcut. It sure make me feel good. Sure make me look good. Don't I deserve this? 
if God was really your father? But the answer to that is, he is. And the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary and the power of the resurrection is all that I need to know. I know who I am in Christ, and I know what he means to me. Let's stand together.